Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to Globe Change. Globe Change is the Uniglobe podcast in collaboration with Next Step and Michael Waits Media. That's, that's me. Uniglobe is Thailand's first student-run organization to provide university application and other insights through events and its online platform. And Next Step is an advanced experiential learning organization based in Asia, providing internships, study abroad programs, and learning expeditions for high school, graduate students, and corporates. The Globe Change podcast features stories of accomplished and inspiring Southeast Asian high school graduates that are now in college or on their way to college and universities across the globe. On this episode, I am joined by Paul Keen. Paul, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I am super duper. So just for a little bit of context, why are you laughing at me? You know, no, no. I'm just, I'm just, I'm re- very ready. Just in a good mood, right? So just for a little bit of context, why don't you tell me where you're from? I was born in Bangkok, Thailand, but my mother is from New York in the United States, and my dad is from London in the United Kingdom. Really? So how long has your mom, have your mom and dad been living in Thailand? Um, upwards of. 20 years. And did they meet here or did they meet somewhere? Because they're not from the same country. No, they actually met in Alabama. Okay. Like, this is, again, starting to sound like a Tarantino movie. But <laughs> why were they, what were they doing in Alabama? They were attending a wedding that my mother's college roommate was marrying my dad's brother. So your mother's college roommate was marrying your dad's brother. Correct. And then your mother met your dad there. And then after who knows how much time, but they fell in love with each other and then they got married. Correct. I don't think I've heard many stories where people actually meet at somebody else's wedding and end up getting married. Yeah, it's a little strange. And the strange thing is they ended up getting married 10 years after that wedding. That's even rarer, I mm. think. And they only saw each other three times in the span. So what, what was your dad... <laughs> I'm making this up. Yeah, thank you. It all sounds like a bad movie. But what, what was your dad doing in the United States? He was attending his brother's wedding. Oh, that's it. So he wasn't even living there. He wasn't going to school there. No. Nope. So this was really super random. Mm-hmm. To a large extent. Wow. So what made your parents move? I presume that they were married when they moved to Thailand. Yes. Well, no. Yes. They were married when my mother moved to Thailand. My father was already living here. And what brought your dad to Thailand? My dad came to Thailand with the Sawadee magazine, um, the in-flight magazine for Thai, and decided to leave that and then decided to start a company in Bangkok and has been out here. Ever since, pretty much. So your dad was in the magazine business or in the marketing business, and he was working for a Sawadi magazine, which was what? The in-flight magazine for Thai Airways. Correct. That was a long time ago, though, right? It was, although it's still still alive. Yeah, well, the airline's still alive. Still in the front pocket. Flagship. <laughs> still in the front pocket, still the flagship carrier. And how old are you? I'm 19. You're 19 years old. And where did you graduate from? I graduated from the International School of Amsterdam. Amsterdam? How did you get to Amsterdam? You were born in Thailand though, right? Yes. And you went to school in Thailand before you moved to Amsterdam? Up until the age of 16. So what prompted the change? Actually, let's just talk about this first. So you were going to NIST here from when you first went to school. And you were going through the normal IB program until you were 16 years old. Mm -hmm. And then you just decided as a 16-year-old unilaterally? Or was it like a family decision that you wanted to go to Amsterdam? My entire family decided to move to Amsterdam. um, But after... A few months, my father pretty much was living in between the two places, if not spending more time in Asia. Um, and then after I graduated, my mom and my little sister moved back to Bangkok. Okay, so just for a little bit of context for me, I lived in Trumbull, Connecticut and went to my first two years of high school there, ninth grade and 10th grade. And then I moved in 11th grade, so 11th and 12th, kind of similar where you did, exactly. two years left to go, in the middle of high school. 
and it was miserable. There's a big difference between moving from Bangkok, which is a dynamic, sort of fascinating city, to Amsterdam, which again is a just really interesting city, really multicultural, international. You know, I moved from Connecticut to Pennsylvania, which is not much of a move, but a real pain in the ass. At least it was for me. Was it something you were happy to do? Like, were you excited about switching schools in the middle of? I was extremely excited. Um, I felt like it was a good academic break to take in between the middle years program and the international baccalaureate's diploma program. Um, And I also felt as though I had a very strong root in Bangkok, friends that I can call family and love the city, knew it as well as I knew anything. But I definitely wanted to experience something else. Um, I was really intrigued by that experience being in Europe being somewhere so developed, so dynamic, so forward-thinking, so progressive as Amsterdam was unbelievably enticing. And so I was very, I was extremely enthusiastic. Were you given a choice? In other words, did the family like sit around the dinner table and your mom and dad said, look, we're moving to Amsterdam for this reason or for that reason. You can either stay here because there's an infrastructure here that can allow you to finish and graduate from here. Or do you want to just try something new? Because I didn't have a choice. I believe my parents are two incredible people and... My whole life, even from a very young age, respected me and, and my decisions. And I think that That's awesome. to a large extent, yes, if, if, I, if I'd been persistent in staying here, I think they, that I would have stayed. They would have said that that was okay. So I know what your dad does. What does your mom do? Um, my mom actually works in the same organization, but she works um, and runs the advocacy, adv- advocacy branch where she basically does layouts and visual expressions for nonprofit organizations. And is that based on something that she'd been doing her entire career? So what was your mother trained as? Like, my, where, did, where did your mother go to school? My mom went to undergraduate school at Princeton <laughs> and graduate school at Yale. Wow. So she took the easy route. Right, exactly. <laughs> the whole time. She wasn't very academic. <laughs> she wasn't very academic. <laughs> she was educationally challenged. <laughs> your mother sounds brilliant. Um, so she was trained as an architect. Yes. Is that, is that a master's in architecture? That you At the Yale Architecture School, yes. That's pretty amazing. So I also went, and I didn't mention this offline, but I went for a couple of years, I went to a very small private school in Woodbridge, Connecticut. So we used to go play inside Yale Ball. Okay. Yeah, when it wasn't, <laughs> when it wasn't open. Yeah. We were good kids, though. <laughs> um, so before you, before you moved to Amsterdam mm. as a 16-year-old, had you traveled a lot? In other words, were you comfortable like being in a different place or going to different countries um, and experiencing different cultures? I absolutely. Um, we would usually spend winters in Europe and summers in the U.S. And with you know the Thai holidays with with, with Songkran and weeks off in February and, and in October, we would usually be out of the country, going to a new place. My dad travels a lot, specializing in hospitality and, and travel. He he gets to go and visit a lot of cool places. And so I, in some ways, I kind of see my my childhood and growing up here as being at a boarding school with my parents in the sense that I would be here, here. for terms right. and then I would be away during the break. So where did you go and where did you go in the United States when you went there for the summers you said, yeah? Yeah, my grandparents live in Greenwich, Connecticut, and so we would go there but also spend a lot of time in Manhattan where we also have family. Connecticut's awesome in the summertime. New England is really incredible in the it's, summertime. Yeah, it's pretty nice. Right? Because <laughs> it gets really warm during the day and the beaches in Fairfield County are actually okay. Mm-hmm. And the seafood is seafood's pretty insane. delicious. <laughs> and at nighttime it cools off. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not, not so bad. And where did you go in Europe in the winters? Um, we would sometimes go to the UK, to London, but we have less family there. But we we take trips to, to different places in Europe, whether that was to Germany, to Switzerland, to 
Got the it. Netherlands. So you said your dad's been running a company in Thailand for the past 18 years on his own. He said he first worked for the magazine and stopped doing that and said, I'm going to do this on my own. Do you remember, like, did he start that before you were born? Yes. Okay, so you don't remember the founding of that at all? No, I was in diapers. You were in diapers. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually older then than you are now, <laughs> which is kind of funny for me. Um Okay, because I'm really curious, and maybe I'll just ask your dad this, but I'm, I'm always curious what it seems like to a child when their parents stop doing something where there's like a salary involved mm. and switch into something that's zero. Right. Right? Do you get a sense, does your dad ever talk to you about what it's like to start something from scratch? And do you ever think about doing that yourself? You know what I mean? It's hard. Yes. I think, I mean, it's definitely been quite an inspiring aspect of my life that, that you know, he reached such a feat, but... I've also then also seen the the difficulties in some sense, the stress that it brings, although How? the risks and rewards are, are, are awesome of starting your own thing, especially a creative agency, because not only is it your own, you know, your own child in some senses, but it's also something that you can be creative with. And, and instead of just creating a product and continuously selling that, every client that, that, that comes is, is a new client, right. is, is something completely different is a new problem to solve in some senses. Yeah. Um, and so both aspects of starting your own company in that respect were, I, I was extremely impressed by it. Did, did, um, you, did you understand as you got older, obviously as a five-year-old or a six-year-old, you're not going to get it, but as a 12-year-old or a 15-year-old, even as a 16-year-old, you, did you sense the risk? Did you understand what it meant? I did because my dad and I are quite close as well as me and my mom. That's um, awesome. We're very close. So I, I think that I would kind of ride the waves with them um, throughout this journey. And it's definitely been an incentive to maybe one day do the same. But also, I can see the... I feel like a lot of people, when you think about starting your own thing and, and being in complete control, it's all very glamorous. Yeah, it's super romantic <laughs> uh, exactly, and very glamorous. But, I'm in charge. Right. I have to answer to nobody. Exactly. And you think the second that you start putting out what you think is the best, it's everyone will think it's everywhere. the best too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's But not. it's really not like that. I mean, you... Just kind of going back to you know crunching numbers and then taking into account cash flow and revenue and budget and and making making that budget every month and and doing things like product listing and company culture and all of the the kind of nitgritty things to make a company work and to support a family is something that I was kind of able to see my whole life and right and I think here's something else you you bring up a really good point right the supporting a family. I don't know how many, we're sitting in, the, in one of your, the offices of the firm, right, right now and having this conversation face to face and you walk through the office and let's just say there are more, more than five people out there. No, but every single one of those people has a family as well. And as a business owner, you don't just feel that responsibility to your own family, but now you have responsibility for everybody else's family that's in the room. And I think, like you said, that romance that people have for starting their own company is sometimes lost in the fact that you have so much more responsibility than just for the four people that live in your house, mm -hmm. right? And that the ups and downs, the ups are great, and the downs are really dangerous because now it affects you and everybody else that trusts you and works with you. Absolutely. And if you can learn that as you're growing up, actually, I think that's really significant. Mm -hmm. yeah? yeah. No, absolutely. It's always <clears throat> felt like, in some senses, the family was something, something larger. There was yeah. always something more at stake. A little bit more extended, yeah. So are you involved on kind of a day-to-day -day basis? in the business as well? Like, is it more than just your dad goes to work every day, your mom goes to work every day, and they come home, and you're just like, who cares? Um, for the last two na two months-ish, um, I have, to a large extent, because I've been coming in, I've been coming in every day and, 
and contributing directly. Wow. Um, but my whole life, I think I've been in tune with with what's been going on and, and always able to kind of contribute from a from a home setting. <laughs> Interesting. Were there? I like to say just metaphorically, like were there conversations around the dinner table almost every night about business? Do you know what I mean? I wouldn't say every night, but. But enough that you got the sense of what was going on. In other words, so it was the first day you showed up at the office yes. and you weren't like, what's going on in here? Yeah. You just there kind of knew already. There weren't a lot of secrets. <laughs> a lot of secrets. <laughs> so you could tell yeah. when things were going well, yeah. when things were going flat and stuff exactly. like that. I guess that's kind of a good thing, right? Anyway. So what was the difference, just to get back to school again, you left NIST. Was the experience at NIST a good one? It was a wonderful one. Yeah, I made friends at NIST and built relationships and learned things at NIST that are were invaluable, priceless. I, I think that it set me up extremely well for going into the diploma in Amsterdam. Um, I think that the relationships I built are were some that have, even to this day, are incredible and, and flourishing. Um, so I think I had an amazing experience at NIST, yes. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty cool to be able to go to school from year one until almost the end. Mm. You kind of grow up. You know, international schools tend to be, and I think in Bangkok, maybe less than in other cities, they tend to be slightly transient. Mm. You know, people come in from other countries, they're international schools. But here it feels like there's a there's an embedded population, right, or an indigenous population in Bangkok that goes to NIST and doesn't leave. Mm. That's true. And that even those sort of kids come in from other places, that out of the 120 kids that are there, let's say, I'm guessing, but at least half of them are there the whole time. Or if not, for a long period of time. I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. I don't know the exact numbers, right? But the idea is that there's a group of people there that you literally grew up with. Mm. You played basketball with or soccer with or whatever the sport was. You went to math class with them. You struggled with them. You dated. Like all that kind of stuff. And then at the end, they're like, okay, that's like my brother. Mm. No. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. You reach those. You you build those familial ties at NIST with with the people that are there. And also because it's an international school um, and... This might just be speculation, but mm-hmm. I, I, I think that it, yeah, at international schools, because there's that lack of, of cultural bonds to a large extent of of nationalism holding you guys together. Right. Um, <clears throat> the relationships that you build are one more organic because they're they're based on who you are as an individual, based on your you know things like things that I believe are more are more valuable than nationality, like like your morals and your and, and your values and your interests and your hobbies, and that's you know the, the kind of the crux of who you are that's what the relationships are built on rather than this kind of safety net and in some senses in international schools there is no safety net right because people are moving around all the time none of you guys are really from the same place right your parents might not even be able to communicate with each other right um but because of that you're brought you're brought close so i think this is one of the greatest points actually that's been made and that is the core of a human is less related to the nation where they're born or raised than the environment in which they're raised, that core, that deep down inside, mm. what you value, those values are really what define you. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting, actually. We talked about this a little bit offline, right? But in, in general, in a city like Bangkok, in a city like Singapore, in a city like Tokyo, even in Mumbai, right, or in Jakarta, in general, there's a certain percent of kids that go to international school whose mother or father is local and whose spouse is from another country. And that just makes for a really interesting diversity, and yet you're not that at all. Right? And we talked about this too. So I have this concept of freedom, right? And you'll see how this dovetails with what we were talking about earlier. Freedom is something I believe you can't give to somebody. You're born with it. You can only take it away. 
Now, we were, remember we talked about this before, the nationality. So I said to you, do you care? Like, remember you said people ask you, do you feel like you don't have a sense of identity because of this, that, and the other thing? And you're like, I never had that anyway. Mm-hmm. So it can't be taken away from me. Exactly. And how, like, can you put that into context? You were talking before about, like, refugees. And that right. was, I thought, an interesting perspective. Right. Um, well, just kind of going back on what you were saying, yeah, I am af- often asked, what's it like to not necessarily have a nationality, to not, to, you know, yeah, even in international school, you have days like UN Day or, 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 or International Day where you're supposed to go and dress up as... Right, the, Where the hell you're like from, the right? Booth, yeah, right? So like Italian clothes. <laughs> yeah, that is. right, exactly. Red um, pants and but I mean, I, I don't believe that it's something that has that has burdened me in my life. But for for the only reason that I never had it, so it was never something that I felt was lost to me or something that was desirable. Because for me, <clears throat> being in the part of the international community, being from nowhere was where I was from. Right, that was a benefit, actually. A hundred percent. Could not agree more. Exactly. Um, and I think that actually when you are brought up with the nationality, and I was just saying this because a cause that I'm very passionate no, about. No, go, and, go, go. And, um, and something that I did in high school and also after I graduated was, was work a lot with refugees. Where? Um, in in high school, I was working with local refugees in the Amstelfeng community, which is a small um, suburb off of Amsterdam. Um, and so there I was working with, because the, I, I, there are kind of two levels of, of what we were doing. Um, so in Amsterdam, they were all being, they were all studying Dutch and they were all living relatively close to one another, but they were given incredible welfare from the state. They were given housing, they were given education, they were giving, they were given clothes, budget, everything. And so when I was in high school, I started a service group that would meet with them on a daily basis and try and integrate them into the the local community we'd we'd go ice skating we'd go to concerts we'd we'd hang out and now the group's grown to even teaching them english um at back at back at the high school and then after i graduated i went to katsikas in greece to um a refugee camp for a month and that kind of definitely opened my eyes to a completely different form of refugee <laughs> um because yeah. there you you know you see children running around who haven't been educated Ever, right. you see parents who sleep all day because they've lost hope and lost purpose. You see young couples who are in the midst of having their fourth baby simply because they don't know anything else. Um, and being there and meeting the different inspiring volunteers who were also there was a huge was was amazing. But being with being in a room with a Shia, a Sunni, and a Kurd and an Arab right. and all of them together all in the same boat and hearing the different stories and interacting with with refugees on a daily basis and really understanding that actually the conflict is not the worst part of the refugee crisis this this idea that you know at least when someone is fleeing a country or someone realizes that that there's a serious political dysfunction and they need to leave that's actually not the worst part but when they reach these places when they reach Greece which is in some senses, no man's land, a, a place of calm. That's when the upset really starts because that's when they realize that there is no longer a goal, there's no longer a place to go because they've reached that. But at that place, there's no opportunity for work. Right. There's, there's nothing. There's no to purpose. Do. Um, that's that was kind of that was the most eye-opening thing for me. And just kind of sorry, going back on the point mm. um, of that that loss of nationality and that loss of purpose and that loss of enthusiasm that's something that can be that's something that can break i believe a human being and i i, I believe as 
you you really witness it when you go and, and to these camps. Yeah. Um, Look, the loss of hope is debilitating. Exactly. And it's hard to explain to someone who's never lost hope, right? It's like we talk a lot about, and we've talked a lot on these podcasts about mental illness now mm. people don't understand that about depression mm. and i like to say depression is not just being bummed out about like you didn't get the date you wanted or dinner wasn't as delicious as you thought it would be mm. there's a chemical change that happens in your brain and i think the same thing happens when you have this loss of hope yeah and once you take that away from somebody and this gets back to what we were talking before about freedom right i can you can have be freedom or be free where i can take it away from you if i take away your no hope, yeah I'll, t- I'll tell you a story um, please the the it must have been the second day that I was on the camp, and I it was in Greece. In Greece, yeah. I was early in the morning. The sun was just rising, and it was it was such an ironic place to be because it's idyllically beautiful. Because it's unbelievably beautiful. The mountain ranges are like things you see on Apple desktops, right? right, right, right. <laughs> and you're there in this cove of this these these just these trailers where all where, where the camp really is. And I was shoveling cow shit and putting it in 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 garbage bags, and a very Shia looking Afghani came up to me. The very, very, you know, very, very strong facial attributes and stuff. Yep. Um, and he came up to me and we started to talk. And his name was Connolly. And over the next month, I got to know Connolly pretty well. But he always had such a such a sad expression. Mm. And he he explained to me that his profession was he'd been in the Afghani army, and then afterwards he was he would lay electric fences. It, for farmers and, and in the agricultural industry. And that was his niche. That's what Connolly did. That was his skill set. Right. And the thing that was the most devastating of everything wasn't necessarily that his whole nationality was imploding or right. that his, you know, that, that, that he didn't have a home anymore, but it was this, this sense that that was his purpose. That right. was the skill set in which he contributed to, to community, to society, and he was no longer able to practice that. And just... That simple example just kind of shows the how dangerous this crisis really is. Where does your interest in refugees emanate? Like, where does it come from? It's a very good question. Because um, you clearly care. Right. I, like you can't fake this, this type of passion. <laughs> you can't fake. I mean, that that's a compliment, mm. right? But, I mean, you care. Mm. Um, but where does it come from? I, I think because I did kind of acknowledge when I started to get into into politics and policy and I guess we'll we'll talk about we'll talk about fields of study a little bit later. But yeah. um I did kind of acknowledge that this was the most pressing issue to human beings. And I've always been very passionate about about people. I mean I, yes, the environment is great. Yes, there's lots of other issues around the world. Sure, you can't do everything. You, can, you, know? you, gotta, you gotta pick your But thing, the right? fact that, that this issue in particular was was what was making people, I believe suffer right. the most in the world yep. was reason enough and passion enough to make it something that I believed needed attention. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, good for you. Good for you. So what is your interest in politics? You said we'll get to fields of study in a second, <laughs> but what does that mean? Because you're not, right now you're not studying, you're on a gap year, right? Correct. So we'll talk about that too, because I think that's also really interesting mm-hmm. and a great idea, to be fair. <laughs> um, but what what do you mean by fields of study? Um, I... I've just always been extremely interested in, in policy and in politics okay. um, and in kind of the field of social policy and the, in the creation of policy by the public sector to better the welfare of society. And again, is this something that you just 
experienced yourself or was it conversations that your mom um, and dad had around the table? To be honest, I, I realized it was a strong passion when it was a strong passion, but then to university applications asked me to like dig <laughs> dig deeper. dig to where that actually came, came from. from and I realized I think a lot of it did come from the move that I actually had from Bangkok to Amsterdam really because I I went from a society that although so vibrant although so much love was in so many ways so dysfunctional here here and when you go to the Netherlands the welfare and the structure for everything from a park bench to the voting systems is is just i mean it's so impressive <laughs> especially coming from 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 here so this is this is part of the conversation again we were having offline when you live in a bubble wherever your bubble is you just take it for granted that that's mm. normal mm. exactly right so if i'd asked you before you left thailand is thailand is bangkok you know, a little bit crazy. Is it slightly disorganized? Like all these, you'd be like, no, this is just normal. Mm. But when you leave, you see differences, good or bad. I'm not making a value judgment. Absolutely. I love Bangkok. I frankly, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else in the world today because of the dynamism here, but it's different. Mm -hmm. And you don't notice the difference until you leave. Right. And then you look back and go, okay, wow, mm -hmm. things are different in other places. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. And then so kind of connecting that, that move, to what I kind of mentioned before of helping people. people. Yeah. I think I realized that although you can, going back to the beginning of this of, of, the, of the whole podcast of, of creating your own company or, yeah, or yeah, creating yeah. a product or doing something, I saw that actually I think that the way that you can reach the most amount of people, make the biggest impact would be through the public sector and through policy awesome. and through a restructure of society. And so that's what that in, in combination with the move, I think, is what got me so passionate about that field of study. That's really interesting. So when your gap year is done, mm -hmm. and the gap year alone is just a really long conversation, <laughs> but when the gap year is done, have you decided where you're going to go study? Um, yes. I was actually just going back and forth between le even even a week ago um, between the University of Edinburgh and the universe and London School of Economics and Political Science in okay. the UK. And what did you choose? And I've just committed to the LSE. LSE. Fair enough. Both great places, though. Like, both superior places, right? I, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, the market believes it. <laughs> whether, you like, whether you believe yeah. it or not, the market's already spoken. <laughs> the market believes that both of those places are great. And you decided to study... At the LSE, yes. At LSE, and what are you going to study? Political... Policy and politics. Wow. So do you think <laughs> that you'll go into government? Um, or some kind of public policy? Like, if you consider that, it sounds like... Yeah. It sounds like you really want to make um, a difference. I think I... I I have no idea because, I mean, things can change every second, right? But I think that right now what I'd be most interested in is, is figuring out a way of a creative solutions to politics and policy. So to, to somehow changing the way that we think about policy today, changing the way that, that society the, and populations interact with the structure of society. Because now it's something that I feel like is, isn't thought about enough and it's not done in a lot of the world, and I believe in some places it's it's being done to amazing measures, but right. I feel like in a, in a lot of the world, it's taken that what society, the structure of society, the way the welfare that is given, and is 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 it is fixed. That's what it is. Right. Rather than thinking we could achieve more or better, better. Yeah. So <laughs> I feel like I mean, there's this old Chinese saying, right? Like we live in interesting times, mm. and I think history is filled with inflection points. 
you don't know whether you're in them when you're in them until you look back 50 years and think, okay, that was an inflection point. Right. But I feel like there's some inflecting going on right now, mm -hmm. particularly as it relates to human migration, because at least in my lifetime, right, and I'm 30-something years older than you are, I've never felt like the movement of humans on the earth has mm -hmm. been so pronounced as it is today. And just like you said, the movement itself is not the problem. It's what you do. The problem is when you arrive in the place where you decide to stay, mm. because then what do you do? Right. Right. We take for granted as native English speakers, we can go almost anywhere in the world and communicate with somebody. It's not our fault. No, it's just a Benny that we have for just being born. Very lucky. From parents. Yeah, I consider myself extremely lucky to be born a Caucasian male in the United States of America in 1965. Like 10 years earlier, I'd be a different person. And 20 years later, I'd be a different person. But I was born in the middle of the 60s. It was perfect. The world was mine, basically. Not my fault, mm -hmm. right? But for all those people where it's not, what is it like when you're an Afghan citizen and you're now in Greece, which sounds like amazing, it's not. Right? So I think that there's a lot of that going on in the world and a lot of people are arguing about that right mm -hmm. now. And the fact, I like the fact that a 20-year-old is actually thinking about it. No, because we always say, like, the future's not in my hands. Right. It's in yours. Right. And... You can either be like a dick yeah. or you can be thoughtful. And it's just great to meet people that are thoughtful. I mean that. I really mean that. That's one of the, We talked about this again offline, but that's one of the things I love about doing this is I get to meet some of the most thoughtful people in the world. And it gives me hope. Mm. And I mean, going, going back to that example of, of a basic idea of how policy can change lives. I mean, Tell me. If you look at the refugees <clears throat> in Amsterdam compared to the refugees in Greece, I mean... By and large, the happiness and the education and the the relief that's given to those in Amsterdam, and you compare that to those in, in Greece, those in Amsterdam will futures are infinitely brighter at this at this moment. Right. And that's by and large because of what of the get. policy. Of, because of the policy, right? So here's the really interesting thing. You can hate immigrants and just say, get that out of our country, wherever your country is. Or you can, you can actually deal with the statistics and say, let's take all of them, and if we can help 78% of them, it's better than helping none of them. It's better than throwing them all out. Whatever that percentage is, because like you said, that policy that says, we're going to integrate them into society, we're going to educate them, we're going to give them clothes, we're going to give them food, we're going to give them just the bare necessities to live and a little bit more, then they'll love mm -hmm. Amsterdam. And they'll want to protect it mm -hmm. in the same way they'd want to protect their hometown, wherever it is. Right. But if you bring them into a country, separate the mothers from their children, put them in cages, they're going to hate you forever. And you're just creating a problem for yourself that didn't exist before. And this is where policy has real impact, I think, on society. And I think that's one of the things that you're saying. Right. No, exactly. And, and especially, especially for children. Because oh. you, you see, you see <clears throat> in Greece... At the refugee camp, there's no education. There's no, there's the, the kids from, they wake up in the morning and they're pretty much going until they, they're just in the camp doing what they're going to do right, until they go to bed at night. Around. Exactly. And so I kind of deduced that there were then this, what was spit out of that were, were two types of kids. There were either kids that would go absolutely animalistic. They would just go, they'd yeah. be crazy all day. Yeah. Um, and they'd be running around and they'd be throwing things and they'd be crying and then they'd be up and they'd be laughing and they, and then there were kids that were in some senses entirely tranquilized. They would walk around very shy, not being uncomfortable within themselves, and that was 
their existence. And because those were the two types of kids you saw, you saw one how important education is, mm. but not because of the stuff that you learn. Learn. No, 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 no. It actually, the fact, I mean, you don't you don't realize it as like a two-year-old kid, but you mm. don't realize that going to, like, forget just the idea of school, but going to a place where you're not surrounded by, you're, you're surrounded by adults that care about you that aren't your parents, and that will tell you what to do that aren't your parents, and that you're surrounded by peers of the same age group and right. the same social situation Whatever. that you can interact with. Yep. And that you're taught values like sharing, right. like humility. Yep. That is the crux of the of, of, of the importance of, of education. Right. So education really teaches you socialization. Exactly. How to be a social person. Right. How to behave in mm-hmm. public. The and math you learn. Right. Okay. Fair sure. enough. Six plus seven is no. you know thirteen. That's great to know. <laughs> and maybe you'll never figure it out if you're not educated. But you definitely will not figure out how to share. Right. Or how to be polite. And in that sense, because you won't learn that, you'll never really learn about yourself. And you won't you won't be able to find out what your own interests are, the types of people that you like. Sure. The types of the types of subjects that you're interested in. You'll never figure that out if those core values aren't built. But you'll also from be ostracized from society. Absolutely. That's why they call it society. Absolutely. You will not be included in that group. And once you're out of that group, now you're just a criminal. And because this crisis has been going on for so long, it's such a shame that there are now people who are, there are now children who are 12, 13, and they've been in this crisis for six, seven, eight years. Yeah. And it's, it's gone. And that's they, their bubble, right? That was... That gets back to what we were talking about that before. Was it. That's their bubble. That's yeah. all they know. Exactly. And it's hard to socialize a 12-year-old, right, when mm-hmm. they haven't been socialized since they were two. And the other thing you realize from these children is how... If they were given the opportunity for education, because you meet kids, I I became really close with this with this boy who was either nine, ten, or eleven. I'm not sure he was even sure. Um, <laughs> um, but this young boy named Yamin, and, and we'd hang out every day, all day, um, pretty much. He'd do the rounds with me at night, giving giving out things to to the different trailers. But if he was just given a day of school a week, right, it changed everything. <laughs> but what does that tell you? When you look at the world, and I, this is a comment for both of us, right? We've both been educated. We've both been socialized. We've both grown up in a way that's been very lucky and privileged. When you look then at other people, does it change the way you perceive other people that, you may, that may not have gone through the same sort of lucky existence that we have? But before you went to the refugee camps, you might have thought, ah, they don't know this, that, and the other thing. And now you're like, holy shit, how can I help them? Exactly. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know the difference, And right? you absolutely realize... Um, it sounded a bit cliche, but you absolutely realize how real equality is, how real every human is a human. Right. And it's circumstance sucks sometimes, but how every human is, yeah. is in their own. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a great way to end. <laughs> what a great conversation. I really appreciate your time today. No, yeah, for that sure. That was awesome. And I feel like there's so much more to talk about. Maybe we should <laughs> yeah, we didn't an, even talk about the, the, the gap, gap year. <laughs> but maybe we should do another one of these if you're up for it. Sure. I'd definitely be up for it because I feel like there's a lot more to talk about. Paul, I really want to thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. That was awesome.